0: DarkCast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasting. Hey, hey, welcome back to Autumn's Oddities. I'm Autumn. My apologies for a No Monday episode. I had some bad takeout. I'm guessing that's what it was over the weekend and legitimately threw up everything I ate or drank for about two days. Uh, Needless to say, I was not capable of sitting in front of a microphone for longer than a few seconds. He would have gotten some very realistic sound effects if I had. Also, I'm going to change my episode release day from Monday to Tuesday starting next week. It's just going to be too difficult to record on Sundays once wedding season starts up. I'm going to be tired, you know, recovering physically from standing and working eight ten hours something like that you know i'm a wedding coordinator for an awesome sustainable wedding planning company called juniper sisters events if you want to check us out on instagram uh, so the new schedule will be tuesday and friday as release days from here on out just to make it a little bit easier on me and on not a light note at all on monday of this week i'm recording on thursday We had a mass shooting at a bank in downtown Louisville, and I don't even know what to say anymore about this, unfortunately, very uniquely American phenomena. It wasn't even the only shooting before noon that day in the city either, but I guess the news media doesn't care about just one person dying at a community slash technical college. Uh, I don't even think they really care about mass shootings except to boost ratings. Anyway, it's the same cycle over and over again. Uh, The bank shooting was yet again perpetrated with a semi-automatic rifle, uh, killed two friends of the governor, as well as three other people. And at some point, just based on statistics, it will eventually be our turns to experience gun violence if we haven't already. And that's absolutely terrifying. Um, It's time to speak up against gun violence and in favor of common sense gun laws while we still can, because as we've all seen, mass shootings can and do happen everywhere. Uh, I'm devastated that it happened in my city, but I'm not shocked because, you know, these incidents won't stop until we demand action from our legislators. These elected officials who don't listen to the people who put them in office and just continue to take money from massive political lobbies. What's the point of democracy if, you know, people are bought and paid? I understand this is not a new thing. I get it. I'm just, we don't have to, we don't have to accept it. We don't have to. This is not a political statement. This is common sense. We don't have to keep towing the line. We have voices. We can fight back. I'm going to leave it at that. Today's case is very directly related to another issue that is dividing the United States currently, you know, along with gun laws, and that is drag. Uh, I understand that a lot of people have preconceived notions of what drag is, and if you're one of those people, I'm asking you to just keep an open mind and heart and keep listening to this episode. If you just can't do it, if your heart is full of that much hate and you would like to remain uninformed. I guess turn the episode off. I'm not going to tell you how to feel. I'm just asking you to go outside of your comfort zone just a little bit on this one. I'm always willing to listen to the views of people with beliefs that aren't different from my own, as long as they aren't just fanatical and screaming things that don't make sense. And a lot of the time it turns out that I just don't have a complete understanding of a topic. You know, there's nothing graphic or offensive in this episode except me, I don't know, maybe me dropping an F bomb, but you know, you've probably come to expect that from me by now. If you've been listening for a while, there's going to be an odd one here and there. That being said, today's case is one that I'd heard about probably a decade ago, uh, but I rewatched the documentary Paris is Burning, which is streaming on HBO Max or whatever the hell it's going to be renamed to. What is it, Max? Who cares anymore? there's too many streaming services. This is confusing. Uh, I was reminded of the unsolved murder of Venus Extravaganza. And it really struck a chord with me because in the documentary, Venus, who was a transgender woman, is interviewed several times. And really, the only thing that she wanted was to have a house in the suburbs, to get married in a church, and just to have a normal life. Just simple things that most of us take for granted, were this person's ultimate life goals. She never got what she wanted, though. Her life was cut tragically short. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know with this statement, but the tolerance and acceptance of minorities, that includes women, into society has never been an easy process. American society has witnessed a few successful occasions when groups of people have gained their right to equality, like women, I guess, uh, even though we don't have equal rights to men but at least now we're allowed to apply for credit on our own without our husband having to sign off (laughs) jesus isn't that insane like within our mothers most of our mother's lifetimes women could not have a credit card on their own not trying to make this about me i wasn't even born then i'm just saying so saying that you're gay today is much less risky than it was say like 40 years ago when it was illegal in many places just to exist the way they were. And while have, while there have been many milestones on the road to equality and understanding, and we're definitely not there yet, Paris is Burning is among the most prominent. Shot by Jenny Livingston, the documentary Paris is Burning tells the story of the New York ball phenomenon, which is a subculture of the LGBTQ plus community. The name Paris is Burning alludes to a 1986 ball hosted by Paris Dupree of the House of Dupree, which is itself an allusion to the 1965 book, Is Paris Burning?, about the liberation of Paris during World War II. See, there are layers to this. The film consists of footage from several balls at which the participants engage in walks, which are similar to what fashion models do, and they compete against each other, so kind of a walk-off. The balls comprise several disciplines, including dancing, shading, I'm sure you've heard that term. It's in the lexicon at this point, which is competing in subtle and sometimes gracious insults, reading, which is literally telling people their flaws, like calling them out and settling disputes, and voguing, which is dancing in a style reminiscent of posing for a fashion magazine cover. The film also features interviews and footage of famous drag queens like Venus Extravaganza and Pepper LaBeija, as well as other legendary characters very strongly associated with the scene, like choreographer and voguing legend, Willie Ninja. The film takes an observational approach, offering mostly uncommented raw footage. It's very gritty. It's very real. And I love it. I it's it's an anthropological study to me. It's it's. Fantastic. The film mostly depicts the people rejected by society because of their sexual orientation or gender identity and this movie was um, I believe it was shot in the late 80s and it was released in 1990 and some of these people were forced from their homes by their homophobic parents and they're just trying to live their daily lives and express themselves To some critics, not me, balls were held mostly to engage in vanity, mimicking the style of the upper echelons of society. Uh, Indeed, several critics at the time, as well as representatives of the LGBT community, accused the film of treating the ball culture as a curiosity rather than a socially relevant issue, going as far as to say that a white director could not possibly grasp its significance. Nevertheless, the documentary had a noticeable impact on the public upon its release, helping contribute to the gay rights movement. And I disagree with the critics on this one. I think the right approach from a person on the outside looking in was to film the participants doing exactly what it is they did. You know, that's exactly what a documentary is. It's a glimpse into something that maybe we didn't really know about before or isn't part of the mainstream. I think. Any, I don't, I don't know how else she could have possibly shot this. She just let people do what they did normally and filmed it. The central conflict depicted in the film is the relationship between the queer performers and the rest of, you know, the otherwise heteronormative white society that judged them for their gender identity and sexuality. A secondary conflict appears at the end of the film in the form of the AIDS epidemic, which, of course, devastated the queer community there's so much about ball culture that is a social commentary and I think that may have been lost on people maybe outside of the culture. The subculture itself, however, is not that easily defined. The film kind of leaves a a bitter impression of people trying to resemble the society which rejects them by, of course, copying its most controversial traits like whiteness and you know European kind of features and dressing in Ralph Lauren and the styles of the preppy elites at the time. Bell Hooks, a social activist, openly stated that drag balls harm the image of the LGBT community as they have neither artistic nor political value and she expressed her concerns that the film would have the same effect and No offense to her, but she can sit down because I'm not sure how people dancing, modeling, and expressing joy is harmful to their community. Mm. Even some of the film participants are seen questioning the activities they're engaging in, like Dorian Corey, a drag queen who, you know, she said she was disappointed with the goals that she no longer finds appealing. Uh, But Dorian wasn't really, she wasn't saying that she regrets what she does. She was saying that she didn't understand the new and understated style of drag. At the time, people wanted to look like models. They, you know, they didn't want to do the big hair and the sequins and the old school showgirl drag that Dorian preferred. The documentary shifts its focus in the same manner with talks of becoming stars gradually being replaced with just, you know, their own terrible life experiences shared by the participants. So, the film started out as kind of, you know, gawking. It's strange and eccentric activity, uh, but it ends up being a story about people and the hardships and the joys that they face daily, the dangers they face. And mm, sadly, you know, their hardships are showcased more predominantly. The film also unearthed the micro world that was present in American society for over a half a century, but was largely you know, not really known about by the general public. It shed light on this. Like, this exists. This has existed. These ball cultures, drag shows, they have existed for a very long time. You know, it just wasn't general knowledge. And it's often cited as a major contributor in shifting the tides in the struggle for equality. And, If it did so, it was probably because it had drawn people's attention to the fact that this unseen world we go by every day also has a human face. Like there are human beings attached to it. They have hopes. They have dreams. They're normal people. The central paradox of the film is that toward the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, elements of ballroom culture like voguing began to be celebrated by mainstream society when artists like Madonna appropriated it, you know, while queer people were still largely discriminated against and rejected for their gender identities and sexuality. And sure, Madonna probably, you know, she thought she was elevating the culture by bringing it to her audience, but I'm sorry, that wasn't really for her. She is not a part of that community. I know she's an icon, obviously. She's a diva, but she used the dance and the expression of of a culture of people, you know, for a song and a music video, I don't know. But voguing, if you don't know what it is, is an art that is inextricably linked with ideas of fashion, luxury and social and economic mobility. It consists of dramatic hand and leg movements, and it's based on elements of classical ballet, jazz, and modern dance techniques, such as those founded by Martha Graham and Lester Horton. And many Voguers are actually professional dancers. Members of the Vogue community have several names for their culture, including the ball world, the ballroom community, and the ballroom scene. Uh, Despite its name, this community should not be confused with cultures involving ballroom dances like a foxtrot, a waltz, whatever. This community is a large community, and it's got lots of groups that belong to houses. Not every drag queen or ballroom performer belongs to a house, but houses have family members in nearly every city and state in the country. The ritual of the ball, I read some academic papers on ballroom culture and one anthropologist actually refers to it as the ritual of the ball. It is the event when community members most, most embrace their own gendered and sexual meanings. And although community members mention that it contains elements of martial arts, which is really cool, if you've never seen somebody Vogue, just Google it it's cool as hell. Most members consider voguing to be dancing like the movement presentations of the popular American stage. Voguing is the only ritual tradition in the community that emphasizes whole body improvisatory action. I'm choking on my own words, sorry. In the ritual of the ball, competitors are judged per category on their performance in the different rituals. There are six main ritual traditions in the ballroom culture. In addition to voguing, these are runway, labels, body, face, and realness. Runway involves exactly what it sounds like. It's walking a runway, forward and backward processional action with very minimal movement or articulation of the upper body and simple pivot turns. Usually the performer has minimal action and they kind of like look unbothered or cool and have just like a low energy. The posture of the body is pretty much vertical except the spine appears to be slightly swayed because the preferred stance is to push the hips slightly forward when processing and to hang the upper spine and like back and high in space. You've seen models walk down a runway. They kind of lead with their hips. Body is also a form of runway. The emphasis here is on the presentation of a body shape that exemplifies, you know, the ideal in the community, which is a luscious or voluptuous body. Or conversely, a thin model's body, a muscular body, or even a stout big body. And that means like shaking, flexing, drawing attention to particular body parts. And performers must sell that body. And silhouettes can also be achieved by using padding and hosiery. Hmm. I mean, yeah, we know. Uh, Face is also a variation of body. Competitors walk very simply towards the judges and present their faces for inspection. Judges look for an unpainted face or someone wearing little to no makeup that's pretty much free of blemishes and bone snatched, meaning graced with a balanced skeletal structure. You know, symmetry between the nose, the eyes, lips and the mouth. Aquiline noses, thinner lips and other common European and Euro-American features are not the standards of facial beauty here. But symmetry is an absolute must. As in the same with body, performers may be called to sell that face. They then draw attention to the parts of the face, you know, batting their eyelashes, doing a little framing, so on and so forth, so that the judges can inspect them. These three traditions play an important role in the ritual of the ball in addition to the remaining three mentioned above. These aspects are the most prominent during competitions, and the movements help competitors embrace their beauty, and thus their, you know, coming out of the closet. Competing successfully in the ritual of the ball is all about accepting yourself, just loving and accepting yourself. Already in the 1920s, gay men would gather under one roof and, you know, have a competition amongst themselves, referred to as balls. Balls were an act of resistance in a world that told poor gender nonconforming people of color that they were worth very little, you know, even by their own families. Performing Realness exposed the reality that their exclusion from the American Dream was not due to a lack of drive or talent, but was indeed a factor of systemic oppression. They are a place where gay people compete by walking in different categories to win trophies. And there is always a category for everyone. And you see that in Paris is Burning. If you can blend in and look like a heterosexual male, then you can walk in butch queen realness category. And if on the other hand, you can blend in with cisgender women, then you can walk in femme queen realness. And if you can walk like a supermodel, then the runway category is the one for you. Uh, a ball is a celebration. And as one of you know the men interviewed in the film says it's like crossing into the looking glass in wonderland you go in there and you feel 100% right as being gay and that just means they feel like they fit in somewhere however behind the trophies and costumes lies a harsh, harsh truth for most of the members of this ball you know that's the closest that they're going to get to their dream life and that's in the film I'm not saying that holds true for now that was back in 1990, but usually these participants have not been accepted by their real families, and so they move into other same-minded people, you know, they kind of form a house, and they're led by house mothers or fathers. The documentary follows gay and transgendered people who answer the director's questions and explain crucial keywords from the community. For example, you know, what is ball, what categories are, what we've already gone over, what boging is, a house, a house mother, father, readings, and shade. This is the terminology. The house system was created in the mid-1970s by Crystal and Lottie Labeja as a response to the racism of the, you know, white-dominated drag establishment. Houses were intended to mirror the iconic fashion houses such as Chanel, Dior, and Saint Laurent. And the queens aspired to emulate both the style and the attitude. Queens formed other all-black houses like the House of La Beige, and Hector Valle and Angie Extravaganza established the first Latinx house, which was the House of Extravaganza, which still exists to this day. Houses function not only as a way for queens of color to organize their own balls, but also as an alternative family structure. House mothers and fathers led their children in competitions and provided homes and mentorship to, to those who just didn't really have any other outside help, that were cast out and unloved by their families, just like Venus. Venus Extravaganza was born Thomas Pelagotti on May 22, 1965, to Italian-American and Puerto Rican parents. She left her house at age 13 or 14 when her parents found out about her doing drag. She said that she left to avoid, you know, just causing her family embarrassment by being who she was, which makes me want to cry. Uh, I cannot imagine my children coming to me and saying that they were gay or that they wanted to do drag and, you know, me telling them to leave or that I was ashamed of them. I could not do that. Truly, I could not. Venus adopted her name as a teenager after leaving home in search of a better life and a family that accepted her. When she got to New York, Venus met Hector Vallee, whom she admitted was the first gay man she'd ever met. And I'm going to assume that she meant the first openly gay man she'd ever met. He took her to Greenwich Village for her 15th birthday, bought her a cake and threw a big party in her honor. He very clearly could see that there was a star quality there and wanted to get her into the family quickly before everybody else figured it out. She had arrived and finally felt accepted in a community of people just like her. Venus took the surname Extravaganza in 1983, and her career took off after being accepted into the House of Extravaganza, one of the many houses made up of predominantly transgender and gay youth associated with the ball culture scene. And Paris is Burning reveals Harlem's Balls specifically really drag-centric events where participants would dress up and walk for trophies we've already gone over it uh it's an intimate portrait of a culture that provided disenfranchised young people an opportunity to be whatever they wanted if only for a night and ambition was the buzzword here the allure of the ball you know is costume high fashion status and wealth combined to form just like an enveloping world of love and acceptance after the founder hector hector valet died from aids angie extravaganza took the role of the extravaganza house mother and she thought of venus as her own daughter and her right hand woman Angie cared for her children the way that any good mother would, making sure they had food, shelter, and that they always got a gift on their birthday. Venus extravaganza was what her peers called passing, meaning that she could walk out of a ball in the daylight because the balls were usually held in the very early morning hours and not be beaten up, you know, for being an obvious drag queen or transgender person. She lived as a woman full time and she just wanted a normal life. Uh, Venus wanted to live far away from New York to be married to a man that she loved. And she wanted to be, quote, a spoiled rich white girl. And also she wanted a sex change, as she referred to, you know, what is now gender reassignment surgery so that she could lead a normal life. That was normal. You know, she she just wanted she wanted to be a spoiled rich white girl in her own words. Outside of the ball, which, you know, happened only occasionally, Venus and most other drag queens did jobs to survive. They had to. It's New York. Venus earned money by going on dates with rich men, which sometimes also involved her giving sexual favors. In the documentary, Venus also said that she had like sort of a sugar daddy arrangement with a few men who she didn't have sex with. But they just like to give her money to buy nice things and they would take her out for dinner. According to Angie, Venus was very wild on the streets, those are her words, and she constantly worried about Venus as Venus herself uh, revealed that there were many incidents where she feared for her life when going out with men after they found out that she was transgender. In one such incident, a client realized that Venus was assigned male at birth and freaked out, threatened to kill her, so Venus grabbed her purse and jumped out the window. Unfortunately, it's believed that one of these incidents is what led to her death in 1988, where she was found strangled to death under a hotel bed in New York, even though Venus claimed in the documentary that she was no longer in that line of work. In the documentary, it was kind of glossed over, like her murder, and I'm like, what the hell? This main character was just murdered, and we're going to blow it off? Like, it was kind of gut punch. And Angie had to make the identification of Venus's unclaimed body, which had apparently been discovered in a hotel room four days after her death. No one knows still who killed or what transpired in those final hours. No one knows who killed her. Her death really was not investigated. Later on, Angie is shown in the documentary reacting to Venus's death, and she comments On, you know, how she feared that something was going to happen, referring to Venus and how wild she was, blah, blah, in the streets. And later on, Angie finishes by saying, quote, that's part of life as far as being a transsexual in New York City and surviving. So that really encapsulates the whole message of the documentary. And that is just how uncertain the lives of LGBTQ plus people are, especially those who are also people of color. As is the case with many current or former sex workers, and particularly those who are transgender, uh, you're not going to find the outrage among the masses that's typically present in crimes against other women. And it's time that we as a society accept the humanity of those among us who choose a path that may be different from our own. Like if a person chooses to live as a woman, they should be treated as one. And I'm not saying chooses to live as a woman. I don't think that's a choice. I think that some people are born the wrong gender and they say I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to live as the gender that I believe I really am. But I think they should be afforded the same concern as anybody else. Venus is buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in North Arlington, New Jersey. To date, no killer has been found. And someone out there knows what happened to her. Um, I mean, I don't know. That was It was a long time ago. They, they could be dead at this point, too. But someone has seen or heard something that might lead the authorities to her killer. And not only does Venus deserve justice, but her family and friends also deserve closure. Well, yeah, I know. Sadly, um, I don't think Venus's murder was investigated at all. We're all shocked because of the fact that she was trans, wasn't white, and, you know, allegedly died at the hands of a client while engaged in sex work. That still happens today, very frequently. Again, none of us are surprised. We've all seen it. Sex workers' murders are just brushed off because of their, quote, high-risk lifestyles. Okay, okay. The sad part is that even if Venus's killer had been caught and went to trial, like a 1980s jury would have probably blamed Venus for being deceptive and the killer would have gotten a lesser sentence, you know, using the gay panic or the trans panic defense. It worked a lot back in the day. Probably still works occasionally. I wish that I had more information on this case, uh, but there is not any more information to be had. The police said, oh, It was a tranny prostitute, and that's to use the parlance of their times. Uh, And it was brushed off. Like, who cares? One less on the streets. And I I think we know that that was the attitude. And she was also a person. She was an incredibly talented performer. Her life meant something. And it's just ridiculous that, you know, a couple of factors in her lifestyle lead to no one caring that someone still murdered her. I think murder is illegal. Last I checked. Uh, But I find drag and ball culture to be absolutely fascinating. I think it's high art. I've been to countless drag shows and not once have I ever seen or heard anything that I found offensive. Um, I've only seen beautifully made up women dancing and lip syncing their hearts out to fun music as a form of self-expression. That's all I've seen. Uh, I've also been to drag story time and that's all that it is. It's a person in a dress reading a book. That's all. That's all it is. It's not this weird, amorphous thing that a lot of people are making it out to be. Drag is theater. Drag is joy. Drag is freedom for a lot of people. And if you don't believe that drag is theater, uh, many Shakespearean roles still require a man to play the part of a woman. And in Shakespearean times, women were not allowed to act. And so, I mean can you think of Shakespearean plays and all the women that have roles in them? They were played by men in drag. Why is that okay? And it's not okay when gay people do it. I am just not understanding, but just because you don't understand the way someone is or how they live, it doesn't mean that they don't have a right to live the way that they want to. So as long as they're not hurting anyone and statistically, They're not. Uh, It's straight men who are pedophiles, typically, because I know the big argument is, oh, drag is drag performances are grooming children. Um, No, they're not. Straight men are pedophiles. Them's the facts. 82 percent of pedophiles are straight men. So please stop listening to anyone who tells you that gay men are predominantly pedophiles. It's not true. There may be outliers, as there are statistically with everything, but the overwhelming majority of people who sexually abuse children are straight men. And if you find a study that's contradictory, because I did, it was written by a religious outlet, and it was written 20 years ago by a religious paper. That's not a study. That's just somebody's opinion. Um, What I read were studies by the Zero Abuse campaign, many other campaigns who, you know, children who are victims of sexual abuse. It was typically a straight man who was the partner of their mother or something like that, or uh, a straight male relative. Them's the breaks. People need to come to come to grips with that. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to say about that. I just wish that more people were kinder and more understanding, even if they don't condone someone else's lifestyle choices. It costs you nothing. Zero dollars to mind your own business (laughs) is all I'm saying. Well, thank you for listening. If you stuck around, um, you can hear more episodes now on Tuesdays and Fridays released on all podcast platforms. On social media, you can find me in all the Evil little dark corners of the interweb on every little social media app. I exist there. Can't get rid of me. I'm stuck. I live in the internet. I plague your computer and all of your devices. Uh, Enough of my tangents. Check out Patreon if you're so inclined. I have uh, uploaded a bonus episode, so you would have had an episode, if you know when i missed monday's episode you would have had an episode cicada 3301 internet's biggest mystery jackass writing puzzles or cia intelligence community recruitment device you're never gonna know if you don't hear that episode and my opinions on it because they're highly valuable also uh last little bit of business the true crime and paranormal podcast festival taking place august 25th through the 27th in Austin, Texas. Get your tickets, please. I would love to see you. I would love so much to see you. Uh, Use code AUTUMN, all caps, A-U-T-U-M-N, and you will get 15% off on your tickets. And as always, I appreciate you listening. And remember, if it's creepy and weird, you'll find it here.